Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best panels, seminars, and other recordings about role-playing game design and publishing. These panels are made possible by the generous contributions of Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show. Episode 66, How to Learn RPG Design, recorded at Gen Con 2015, presented by Jason Pitre, Caleb Stokes, and Andreas Walters. So, hello everyone, welcome to Gen Con, first time slot. Woo! Your dedication and massive coffee consumption <laughs> it will serve you well. We are here to talk about getting started in game design in general, RPG design in specific because that's where we tend to specialize, but uh, what we provide will be generally useful. So, uh, introductions. My friend. I'm Caleb Stokes, uh, owner publisher and only employee of Heaven on Games. Um, uh, I have written uh, a lot of systemless horror scenarios in the 1930s called No Security. Uh, it's available at DTRPG. Uh, I have a book out at Arc Dream called No Soul Left Behind uh, about demonically infused superheroes in a charter high school. Because I like to, I like mass market appeal. And that's a huge <laughs> yeah, I attended this. I attended this panel two, three years ago. <laughs> two, two years ago. Yeah, two, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that got me started writing my own system. Uh, before that, I just freelanced for places like Arc Dream and uh, Eclipse Phase and things like that. So that's, that's where I am. Uh, uh, I was on this panel two years ago. <laughs> um, where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, still here? Yeah, pretty much still here. <laughs> Probably with more whiskey in my system. So. Uh, yeah, so my name is Jason Pitt. I'm a Canadian game designer. I've done a couple uh, games, including apparently in any award-winning game. <laughs> I still don't understand that. So I published the Spark role-playing game and Post-Human Pathways, which got Judge's Spotlight for tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. And I also run a little podcast called the... Uh, RPG Design panel cast. I have a pile of cards here. All of these cards have a tiny URL link to my website where I have a massive pile of resources for everyone. Uh, go there, grab it. It includes, you know, here's where my podcast is. Uh, here's some free games to download. Here's all sorts of um, interesting documents, including the document that we have in front of us uh, for this Panel. Yes. Um, we're, we're, <laughs> we're just reading off everything. Don't expect eye contact. Don't walk up and grab it. Yeah, yeah. Start seeing what our questions are and answers. I am Andreas Walters. I, I guess, most notably known for being the creator of the Baby Bestiary, uh, which releases today. It was a Kickstarter project. Um, I started actually writing uh, third party supplements for Money Good Games, uh, and that was actually my entrance to the game design industry as itself, um, and then from there I kickstarted four projects, non-player cards, Baby Bestiary, Scavengers role-playing game, and I'm not as much of a writer-designer, but more of a project manager and creative direction. So I give, so like the Baby Bestiary, I didn't actually write any of it, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> I paid this guy and a bunch of other people to write it for me. Um, with my direction, so I come from more of the project management, and my actual work is I work in government and transportation planning, on-demand transportation. Uh, feel free to come on up and sit. There's lovely chairs. We don't bite much. <laughs> First row, make it wet. <laughs> uh, so, splash zone, you're safe. <laughs> yeah, not, I was not told. <laughs> you have to told. So... Why are the three of us in particular up here? So we're all members of an organization called the Indie Game Developer Network, uh, the IGDN for short, uh, where we've got about 40-some-odd members from across the world. We have some Brazilians and 
some Australians. And Canadians. Uh, well, we don't care. We're not really international. <laughs> but we're very sorry about it. Uh, so, we're a collective group that's trying to support new game designers, uh, help uh, new people get started, and support our own people in you know, being able to come to Gen Con and run a booth. Because, well, I can't be on a panel right now uh, telling you about things and also staffing a booth. And it takes a village to run a Gen Con booth. Or a village. <laughs> you, yeah, that's Crazy a thing. village, but it's a village. Yeah. Uh, so we've got a massive pile of games, and the crass commercial plug is go to booth 734 and buy all of our stuff. <laughs> Including Baby Bestiary, <laughs> and Spark, and Posting Pathways. And, well, There's like 50 other his stuff's next year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at Arc Dream. Cool. Does anyone have any specific things that they're especially trying to get out of this? Uh, specific questions? They're on coffee. <laughs> um, um, yeah. I suppose, um, how do you deal with uh, revisions and project fatigue? Yeah. <sighs> Um, <laughs> any other specific questions? I figured let's just crowdsource some questions and then build off that. Okay, sure. Um, so, any other questions in addition to that? Um, well, we tried to percolate and find answers yeah, more to that. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, what do you do? Um, you know, so, uh, my case specifically, um, I've started a game, uh, you know, board game in this case, huge Ameritrash game, but... Um, overdid it as far as, uh, you know, scope goes, so I'm trying to revise and pare it down, so just, uh, what's your experience with that? You're saying it's too long and you're trying to whittle it down, or um, too bulky? It, it's, it's too huge. You get you get back to the halfway point, uh, and you begin... Disinterest. Disinterest. Yep. You begin despising it, and also realize that it was way too ambitious. Yep. Yep. That's a thing. Um, Simple as one. So there's actually a uh, it, if we have any other questions, if not, uh, yeah. Mine kind of comes from the opposite end. So I always know kind of what the end goal I have in mind is as far as what product I want. Right. But getting started and getting organized, that's what I always have problems with. So what, Liza, basically, what kind of things do you guys do to get organized at the start and get started with all that? Right. Yes. Fantastic. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's recorded twice, oh. so we're good. I have a so we can remember them and answer them later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, let's, we can answer both of those uh, using this basic starting point. So, let, um, before we give the specific answer that solves both those problems simultaneously. Yeah, I know. Hey. You sign up now for only three easy payments, one really hard payment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, Basics of the gaming industry. One, it is a hobby industry. Do not quit your day job. Unless your day job is unemployment. <laughs> because... It doesn't work that way. Yeah, no. The industry's been built up from... Uh, I mean, for those who make it big, other than that, it's built up from the hobby. Really, from Evil Hat. It's built up from the hobby. It's... Uh, Kickstarter built up from the hobby and it's really it's very organic and if you don't expect to go big or invest full out unless you have the money to I mean if you do it's awesome like Kickstarter is great for that I mean if you can put in enough to get it started get the ball rolling put in your 20% do the pitch or 20-30% and then from there then you have funds to work on but still is that going to carry you to career path you know is that going to earn you 50k a year Profit for you to live on, not 50k in revenue. Like last year, I did 59 in Kickstarter, but that doesn't mean that's my money to keep. That's money I need to spend. Uh, yeah, and if you're if you're quantifying your, uh, you know, wage per hour on that, it's oh, really, oh, yeah, no, we don't do yeah, this. it's beneath. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be beneath minimum wage. So for for me, when I got started, the I, I was trained in a traditional creative writing workshop model at the university level, so like, let's all sit around and talk about how painfully white and male we are, and you know, it's just, <laughs> it's like this really, you know, self-referential uh, system, and I, I went back there uh, previously uh, to work at a literary magazine, 
after working the RPGs for a while. And what I found when it sounded by, like I'm working with all these grad students who want to be professional writers, and we're talking like poets, because you know the poetry game is big nowadays. Oh, yeah. Kids <laughs> love poetry. Um, uh, and they're like, yeah, so I wrote a story last semester. I haven't really feeling anything right now. And I'm in the middle of writing my current book, and I'm just like, I wrote 5,000 words this morning. <laughs> like, and okay, granted, every word is not, you know, shining in view, and I'm not Amy Hemphill, and it's not like, perfect or anything like that, but the thing I realized in working the RPG design and the thing I think that helped you get past fatigue and get past the organization scene is uh, the thing I love about RPG is that it embraces the hack aesthetic. I am not a writer, I am a hack. <laughs> in that I get up and I hack words, and that's the only metric I judge myself by. I don't take time to judge myself as good enough, I don't take time to judge myself bad. That's for later, I did something today if I killed words or not. Like, I hack at it, and it's a job, and that's the way I approach it, even though it's not the job I get paid for. But, like, that's the only way I get past fatigue, or that's the only way I get past the organizational fatigue. He's like, all right, I'm going to write an outline because an outline is words, and I need 2,000 before I can stop this. Like, and it gets you past the days when you don't want to do it, and then the days you do want to do it, you make a lot of progress and you feel good. But... I maintain myself to that metric. Like, if it's a work day, I need this much before I can quit. Uh, that takes a lot of dis discipline or a lot of fear. Uh, so I don't suggest the fear angle. Keep your job. <laughs> but uh, it, that, that's how you get past that stuff. You just hack away at it. And the thing about the RPG industry is so great is that it is a hobby industry. So, like, unlike other industries industry where you might be a hack and you end up, like, writing the script to Transformers 2 or something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nobody is in RPGs for the money. There's nobody at any no level. One. Yeah, there's nobody at any level of the production that's like, oh, I just want to make that sweet RPG money, and I'm going to get these nerds working for me. Nobody's like that. Everybody is for it, and so like, if you're going to be a hack in another industry, you do have to deal with like artistic compromise stuff like that. Nobody's asking me to change my stuff. Like they just want me to have the stuff. Like, well, I, I like your uh, game, but yeah. take it zombies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no. Like I can do that myself. Uh, so uh, yeah, so you can have that sort of very workmanlike aesthetic without very compromising yourself. And you know, a lot of great art comes from that. I mean, Howard was a hack, and Lovecraft was a hack, and I'm not them, but man, they, you do get some cool stuff done. When every day you just sit down and be like, two thousand words, and then I can. You know, play video games. Like, uh, yeah. Um, so, you know how we were saying uh, it, it's a lousy way to make money. Well, there's a key thing, a key anecdote that I love hearing about. Uh, it's actually in Designers and Dragons, which you can pick up at IPR at seven booth seven thirty. Um, so, there was a lot of correspondence between this big American company TSR. And this big professional uh, game publishing games workshop in the UK, yeah, they were both doing it out of their garages and pretending that they were big established businesses to each other <laughs> because they didn't want to say, no, we're just doing it out of our garage. Uh, that's why they actually call it Game Designers Workshop. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and, and the thing is, it's like it's not as it's a small industry. Like board games are putting like four billion a year. It's yeah, like no, yeah. like there's a lot of money, but it's very democratized. It's spread very thin. There's a lot of butter, but the toast is like a football field wall. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like, and that's the thing. So unless you're a distributor, you, you, you can always carve a niche out for yourself. Like I said, demonically infused supervillain charter school simulator. It made thirteen thousand on Kickstarter. That's insane. Like, like <laughs> the fact that there are that many people who want something that niche and specific. That's like an only gaming kind of thing. Like, if I was a AAA video game publisher, that's not going to be on the shelf next to Call of Duty. Like, um, there is a game that just got funded on Kickstarter called Fourteen Days, which is a fantastic game about migraines and chronic pain <laughs> and how to manage your life around it and how it steals your time. Woo! <laughs> this is it's oh, fantastic. Really well, yeah. It's done very well, but it is so niche and specialized and focused that in any other industry, what no, this wouldn't work. But because we are really good at glomming onto small niches, uh, just at, as geekery in general, 
the same thing applies to even video games. I mean, when you're looking at the video game industry as well, I'm starting to delve into one myself. Um, and when you do research on it, really, as an indie developer, it's all about the niche. I mean, because you really have to cultivate that. You can't make a war game. You can't make another D&D, because there's already D&D and Pathfinder, and the plethora of other things. You're not going to make that AAA title that's going to be, oh, it's just a war game. You know, you really have to isolate that and really drill on down to what makes it special. What are you doing to it that makes it special? What are the mechanics that are making it interesting and different and unique? And, like, for the Baby Bestiary, although it's not a role-playing game, it's a role-playing supplement that works for any game that you want because it's just lore, but who would have thought, you know, to put more in your games, you know? What if there's a baby alibear? Are you going to kill it? I mean, certain people will say, totally, how much XP is it worth? <laughs> and other people are going, are you kidding me? It's adorable. Can I write it later? You know? And so you have, you know, is it a mount? Can I make it a mount? And, yeah, so from there, it's just you find your niche, and sometimes it's luck, and sometimes it's passion, and sometimes you have a great idea, and people really fly with it. I mean, I had three pictures for my baby best year, and it kickstarted for 25K. And I, I, I threw it out there as, like, I have no idea if this is going to work. Um, yeah, and uh, one of the other things is we're a tight-knit community. We all know each other. We all do. of us. So, the general rule of being in the industry is say nice things about everyone, because... Unless they're real dicks, then you have a... Yeah, there, there, there's a... There, there are, are exceptions. There, there are exceptions. There, I can think of about five people off the top don't of my head names. that we... <laughs> that we... We don't no, talk about that. that yeah, that, yes. But, for the most part, I mean, everyone is focused on different things and trying to do their own thing, and... Uh, it's not a competition. I have a lot. It's not a competition. It's cooperation. We're building more awesome stuff for different audiences, and that's a key thing that makes the entire system work. It makes everyone feel much better about it. The basic answer that uh, deals with both of your questions is: whenever I am designing a game, and as a basic principle, I establish a mission statement. So. Uh, a game about building worlds and challenging your beliefs. Uh, a game of there is no status quo. Uh, a game of powerful ambition and poor impulse control. <laughs> so, the games in question were Spark, Apocalypse World, and Fiasco, respectively. By having a single, strong mission statement, you judge everything against that. You say, does this rule, rule contribute to my mission statement? If no, consider cutting it. Also, what do I need to do in order to fulfill this mission statement? Okay, I need... If it's a game about powerful ambition and poor impulse control, I need to have something that people are ambitious about. And a mechanical way for them to have bad impulse control. <laughs> That's not hard. <laughs> Uh, we all have that problem. Yeah, I would exactly. <laughs> I would agree uh, with what you're saying in that I think that games are unique from fiction in that like most fiction that is theme first, like this is what I want people to feel and think about society, ends up being like stilted and horrible and unreadable. Uh, whereas games that are not theme first are just a mixed bag of crap that has no reason being together. Like uh, games are great theme first kind of thing. So the game I'm currently desire is a game of economic horror. It is a poverty simulator without being exploitative. So you live the life of someone that's poor, only there's zombies in it, so you don't resort to like human trafficking or drug dealing or, or you know, just living on the street. Zombie trafficking. Yeah, yeah, you just kill zombies for money. Like, the zombie apocalypse happens, but it's unevenly distributed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the people who don't have to deal with zombies are like, hey, uh, who's going to inherit all that property from all those dead people? Do they pay taxes? Are they income on that? Hey, my grandma's still running around. I really don't like the thought of that. Go put her down. Like, and then all the people who are trapped out there is like, great, I need medicine. <laughs> Our bullets, food, uh, I will do it for a fee. So like every system in it is, is like capitalism is scary. And if you're on the wrong side of it, it is worse than the zombie apocalypse. It's out to get you. Uh, and like, and I wrote this based off like one sentence. Uh, and that's that's again the hack. You need you need a endpoint that you can remember or put on a biz, or put in a tweet uh, to aim at as you're doing that. You can also do like the power the big three. Yes. Or the power nineteen or 
yeah, how so, questions you want like that. There's a lot of uh, game designers out here uh, who have each put together their own sort of list of questions that established a solid foundation and framework for their games. Uh, the uh, Power 3, uh, the, the Big 3 Questions by Jared Sorensen, designer of Inspectors, and I think Octane, and uh, one of the designers of Free Market. Um, uh, by the way, Inspectors is Ghostbusters. It includes a mechanic where you sit, yeah, that has like a special, oh God, you sit on a brilliant. chair and you then talk to the camera and they explain what happened next. And you grab control of the narrative, and and that was when uh, the ghost traffic opened up, and all and uh, the five hundred year old ghost of uh, you know the Pope came out. Oh, that's a thing. <laughs> then you get back and deal with it. it it's fantastic. Um, so the uh, big three questions. Question one: What is your game about? Question two, how does your game do this? Question three, how does your game encourage and reward this? Um, and question four from John Wick uh, as an add-on is, how do you make this fun? Um, one could argue that question four makes your game in particular more challenging because it's... Not necessarily fun. No. Yeah, there's, there's, there's engaging and fun, but capitalism is not fun, unless you're on the winning side. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm actually going to, you know, John Wick is a better designer than me, and yeah. far more successful than me. I'm actually going to disagree with John Wick there, because if there's any word I hate in game design, it is fun. And it's yeah. not because I Agreed. hate fun, it is, you the, hate fun. It is the least useful, useful term, term I can possibly existence. imagine. And it's because I teach creative writing workshops, and, and the equivalent of fun in creative writing workshop is flow. Flow is a word you use to demonstrate to everyone in the room you have no freaking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I liked your story, but it could have flowed better. Oh, really? I put a comma on page three. Does it flow better now? <laughs> Did I fix the flow? Oh, there's one on four now. How about now? Are we, you know, it's just so subjective and nonsensical, and it could mean 18 different things. And that's why when you teach a creative writing workshop, you have to learn the vocabulary of the craft. You have to talk about verisimilitude, or dialogue, or, you know, tone. Uh, I think the same thing is true in game design. So I would not ask the fun thing, but I'd do like eight types of fun. I think that's yeah. great. Like abdignation, uh, talking about narrative is fun, simulation is fun. I think those are much better terms. Facets, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, can, I can point to a place on a page that's that. To yeah. Yeah. Bring out from it. Because sometimes it isn't fun. Yeah. You, you know, you're trying to get achieve a certain experience. Because there are some really depressing games out there that are awesome. But, yep. you know, it's not fun, but you're getting an experience that you're looking for. You want to experience that. Um, for example, there is a beautiful game um, and terrifying game called Doggy Dog. It is a game about colonialism. You, the richest player at the table is playing the colonial occupier. Which means you have to ask, so who's the richest player at the table? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Um, and everyone else is playing uh, the occupied. And uh, they... Uh, the rule is that the, uh, the occupied people are must be inferior to the colonizers. And if you don't break that rule, you get punished. And you establish more rules as game goes on, interpreting what the uh, colonialist uh, is doing, and trying to like understand it and parse it, and saying, well, maybe they don't like men in position of authority, so if we ever have, so we need to stop having men in position of authorities, because this is, the, clearly that's what the colonizers want, and they'll stop hitting us if we do this. <coughs> it is a really engaging game. It grabs you by the throat. Um, it is not fun. <laughs> I hope. Uh, yeah, and what's the what's the samurai game? The the lady at the table. Oh, oh Kagematsu. Yeah, Kagematsu. Yeah, is um it is beautiful. Um, Again, not fun, <laughs> but beautiful. Beautiful. Um, so, uh, 
the basic assumption is that you have uh, one uh, woman at the table and like four men at the table. That's that's sort of the basic assumption. And the woman is playing uh, the wandering ronin Kagematsu, and the men are playing the village women. Uh, and Kagematsu uh, is interacting with the village women, who are trying to, and the village women are all trying to convince Kagematsu to stay there and save them uh, from this terrible threat. And the uh, Kagematsu is sitting there and judging if it's if they either love or pity each village woman, and just silently judging. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, yeah. The card game Marrying Mr. Darcy, uh, again, uh, I, I love that game. It is very funny, especially playing with me, because you draw cards like, oh, my dress was too scandalous. Darcy won't like me. Uh, but I realize it's all about building up your character so you can bid on a husband, which in itself is just terrifying. But you, you have these cards that are like beauty, wit, intellect, you know, uh, that you, and you can draw cards all these rounds, you have this huge hand of cards, but the thing about uh, Mary Louise Darcy is you have no turn where you can play cards, you can only play a card if you draw an event card that lets you do it, and so you're totally constrained, like, I am this beautiful, witty, intellectual woman that can only play that card and be that way if some man comes along in a card and tells me to do so, and it's just so constraining and frustrating, I'm like, you get like an hour in this game, it's like you have all these cards and like you have two things on the table because, you know, you didn't win Mr. Darcy's favor at the dance or something like that. And like, yeah, it, and that is a fun game, but the thing I find fun about it is not a fun topic. It, it's interesting and narrativist and engaging and stuff like that. So I'm going to disagree with John Week there. I, I would strike fun from your vocabulary. My last, pu- my last panel is actually the case against fun. And I'm going to talk about this for an hour. Uh, like so, I said, he hates fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is fine. It's not like this is being recorded into the public record. Um, I'll go on twice. right and say it. Oh, yeah, he also runs a podcast. Oh, yes. Uh, Role-playing public radio. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> Woo! Thanks. It's Ross's podcast, Ed. It is Ross's podcast. <laughs> So, flow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the biggest things in game design, uh, from my perspective, particularly getting to engagement, is the concept of meaningful choices. This is why we're playing a game, so that we can make decisions that matter. Have you ever gotten into the point in specific board games, for instance, where you have no you have nothing that will actually have any impact or you are so far behind that no matter what you cannot even change where you're ranking in the, in the list you can't go to second to last place <coughs> your choices are not meaningful this is a thing that we need to try to avoid in game design and try to make sure that we um, encourage in all of our designs uh, one of the things that uh, feeds into this is uh, there's a fantastic uh, designer, Paul Sega, who did uh, My Life with Master and more recently the Play That Book. Uh, both beautiful games. Um, by the way, apologies for all the name dropping. We're going to name <laughs> drop all the time because these are our friends in a lot of these cases. So, Paul Sega, as a principal, uh, explained that the person who creates the adversity cannot be the person who resolves it. Because building a straw man and then burning it down really doesn't help you. It's not engaging. Now, if you build a giant death trap for your friend and then walk away laughing, that's much better. Likewise, uh, this is the traditional GM role has filled uh, that niche. Uh, one, the uh, challenge with the uh, Deus Ex Machina. Uh, idea is, here is an obstacle, now I'm going to solve it for you. And, and that's unrewarding for everyone, as opposed to, here is an obstacle, now how are you going to deal with it? Or, you are doing this, uh, you are trying to do uh, this thing in the fiction, and now we're going to try to overcome that. Um, but having uh, the adversity and 
solution come from different parties is really important. And meaningful choice is also ties into um, like just how basic mechanics work. So like when you're designing a game, like think Dungeons and Dragons, like why do I have so many skills? Um, and when you look at it, it's like what are these skills supposed to accomplish? Am I just rolling just to roll? You know, am I tumbling even though I have like a plus fifteen? I mean, is that is that a meaningful choice? Is it affecting the narrative in any way? Um, or are you going to design your game so that certain events or your actions or the things you actually have to roll for are actually going to mean something? You know, so you actually put a little more value into meaningless dice rolling, and actually like, oh shit, if I roll bad, that sorry, language, um, <laughs> I might be bleeped. Um, <laughs> Uh, so if I like roll bad, it actually going to change like the outcome or change the narrative or something bad's going to happen to me because I you know I botched that jump check and well I'm not going to make it so I guess I'm either falling 20 feet or farther into that spike pit. So I mean you got to make and that's kind of how you reinforce like storytelling as well is like when you want something to happen you want to make it be remembered. Same thing for again uh, video game design. If you want your players to do something or have a mechanic and reinforce the, the feeling that's going on. You got, it really builds into how your players are interacting with your system. And your system is reinforcing the mechanic so that they have the same experience. And they will actually question, you know, it's like, oh, if I do this, you know, if I'm playing, you know, like poker, you know, if I drop these cards, am I going to get something better out of that? You know, it's a choice. It's a deliberate choice to, you know, fold those cards, or even to sacrifice units on the battlefield, you know, because if you lose those units, you know, it's not like, oh, I can build 15 more, you know, I'll be fine. Uh, so making things not, I would say, I was just going to try bringing constancy to it, but it doesn't quite play into this effect yet. Um, but having your choices mean something, and then re having all your mechanics reinforce those choices, so that you get away from less meaningless play, like, you know, oh, if you're just talking to a guy, you know, do you really have to roll a persuasion for the bouncer? I mean, unless you're really trying to do something or if you're really skilled at talking, I mean, unless it's really meaningful, why bother rolling and just do the role play and let him figure that out instead of them relying on the dice to be the guy? Um, so one of the... There, there's, there's this basic mechanic that has floated through the indie game space for a long time. Um, I think it was started with... Um, uh, Burning Wheel and Loot Crane, but I'm, it might predate it. Um, the idea is, uh, say yes or roll the dice. Um, and uh, fundamentally it comes down to is there a valid reason why you should uh, you would say no? And if there is, this is a place where mechanics can solve this question. Uh, there is a uh, fantastic new game uh, done by a friend of mine, also the IGDN, um, called Headspace, where you're all playing these badass cyberpunk operatives uh, with shared consciousness. And you're, you're top tier, you are the hacker, you are the best hacker in the world. Uh, when you're hacking, you just hack. You win. Uh, now, if you're borrowing someone else's skills, which, yes, you can do this. Neural implant. They're kind of great. Um, you have to roll to see if you do that successfully or if you grab some of their emotions along for the ride. Uh, it, it's Sensei Cyberpunk. It's, it's kind of great. But the idea of... No, this, this, is where I'm, this is where I'm confident. So there's no dramatic reason why I would ever fail this. Uh, so I just do it. There's other situations where I can't hack out of every problem. Um, <laughs> no, sometimes, no, sometimes you have to shoot your way out. That's why you have a drone skill. Okay. That's why you have a party more than one. Yes. <laughs> well, with, uh, with player agency, uh, I, I, to go back to that mm -hmm. meaningful choice thing, I mean, that's why you need also catch-up mechanics are very important for, So, in, in any kind of competitive game. Uh, so, I think Blue Shell and Mario Kart. Now, if you're winning... You say nasty curse words when someone blue shells you. But Mario Kart is successful because everyone has a chance to win at all times based on what level power up you get in, in that video game. And so that's helpful, and that's where all those balance and things come in in designing. But at the same time, player agency can be taken from the players, and 
because fun is a useless term. Players can find that engaging. We wouldn't have OSR if people didn't want less player mm -hmm. agency. Like dissociated mechanics, stuff like that. There's, it's save or die in original D&D. &D. Like, did the spikes kill me? Yes. Like, you have no... <laughs> Roll up a new character. Yeah. You have no ability to change that. No amount of your personality is going to fate you past that. There's no fate point, will point, moxie point, or whatever you want to call it, associated mechanic. And people really enjoy that because that's what the game's about. And that's why you need to have that thematic endpoint, that, that slogan, because that's where you decide. So, like, my game, I Steal Player Agency, is that uh, I have a rule called No Budget, No Buy. Before you start the game, you tell me exactly how much you're going to spend on healing yourself, exactly how much you're going to spend developing your character, exactly how much you're going to spend on gear. And if you budgeted it in that, at the end of the game, if you get enough money, you can do it. And if not, you're like me every month, and that, boy, I'd really like that new video game, but got a powerful need to eat, <laughs> uh, and I can't do it. So anything you don't spend on your budget, that causes you stress as much as like the trauma and stuff, because like, oh, this is why I'm poor. You know, if I just planned better, I could bootstrap myself out of this. The Republicans are right. <laughs> you just spiral into self-loathing, and like that's being that's supposed to be more engaging because that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I, I'm not, you know, like I treated myself to a Wendy's value meal, like a decadent hedonist, uh, like, and, and that's the kind of stuff that I'm trying to do. But that's stealing player agency. I'm literally telling you how you can spend money. But the reason I decided that is like it's a game about economic power and being on the wrong side of capitalism. Looking at that endpoint, I can decide this is why I'm taking player agency away here, and this is why I'm adding it here. But the frosty gives you a lot of utility. Yeah, the frosty. <laughs> mm. And you can reuse the straw. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and in the, on the same uh, front, paranoia is oh, a fantastic game. <laughs> it is a game that t says so. What are the problematic behaviors in classic role-playing game and D&D &D and whatnot. <coughs> now, how can we make a setting and a concept of mission statement that turns those problematic behaviors into the really engaging game? So this is why you have six clones. This is why players cannot read into the rule book because if they read into the rule book, this is forbidden and they can lose characters. Yeah. It, this is like... The, the, the GM is wildly abusive... <laughs> this is this is part of the desire to game experience. Um, the aforementioned dog and dog actually uh, does the same thing. It the the colonizer is just an an abusive GM who says, "Oh, yo, you you were going to win this conflict. Yeah, no, no, you don't. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, but I rolled. Yes, and I'm the GM. Yeah. So yeah." Um, <laughs> So uh, one of the other uh, bits in the meaningful choice uh, space is the idea of the fruitful void. Uh, Vincent Baker, creator of amazing games, uh, including Apocalypse World, Dogs of the Vineyard, Poisoned, uh, Inland Age, Kill Copies for Satan. Um, I'm not making that last one up. Uh, uh, he posed something called the fruitful void, which is functionally... Here is a space where the mechanics don't touch, and only player decision and role playing uh, can affect. Uh, so, for instance, a fruitful void in D and D is: Why are you adventuring? Why are you a murder hobo? <laughs> but why do you care? Why aren't you a baker? That murders hobos. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, uh, there's a, uh, in, uh, Dogs of the Vineyard is, what is right? Like, what should I, how should I deal, use my incredible power of theocratic authority plus a gun <laughs> to solve complex social problems? Oh, yeah, works every time. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think the best illustration of Fruitful Void is, like, the unanswered question in D&D &D and why I'm doing this first terrible mechanics that try and answer that it's like alignment <laughs> I'm chaotic neutral so we don't speak the same language paladin like what <laughs> this doesn't make any sense at all like it's way more interesting okay, than no, that's playing. a panel later <laughs> okay yeah but I, I, w I would argue that the stuff the players come up with about why their character is doing it is going to be infinitely more interesting 
then oh, I am I'm somewhere on this actually, grid. Yeah. Because it really doesn't answer the question about what the character's true motives or virtues are. Yeah. And that virtues is a far better way to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Ars Magica is a really good system for that. Yeah. Um, Another excellent system for it. Uh, the Unknown Armies sort of sanity oh. mechanic where like you get hardened to certain things and like oh that's beautiful it's such a beautiful way to describe a character uh, there are great ways to do it but they, like yeah the alignment does not do the job it's more interesting I, I, alignment is, is a very strange and interesting Force edition. good um, evil and unassigned <laughs> yeah uh, and of course alignment is based off all sorts of law versus chaos vast immoral powers and that you were trying to like associate with and no no they're both Terrible. It's just which of the terribles are you associated with, and and that's a that's a bad way to limit player agency. So my alignment limits my actions, but why is it meaningful to the experience I'm trying to build? Because if I play D and D, I want to go in a hole, I want to kill whatever I find there, <laughs> I want to take its stuff, and I want to leave to buy better things to go into a better hole, <laughs> kill like better stuff, and think and like. Hey, that, sometimes you go into the woods. Sometimes, you go into the woods. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, uh, yeah, that's what D and D is about. And how does limiting my yes. actions with alignment that's add to that experience? Well, it, it doesn't really. So, uh, you know, the game where it does that lack of agency increases the experience, but that's because you're aiming for that thematic endpoint. Whereas later, it's yeah, there is sometimes it does not. Yeah. Happen. Is this mechanic necessary to reinforce yeah. what I want yeah. or what I'm trying to achieve? Uh, with all the name dropping, one thing I said, I don't know if it's on the list, uh, if you're going to write games, you need to read and play as many games as possible. And I would I would uh, further add the advice you gave me two years ago is don't just limit yourself to RPGs. Even if you want to design an RPG, board games, card games, traditional, you know, 52 pickup card games, everything you can learn mechanic stuff from. Uh, diplomacy. And, yeah. Read and understand diplomacy. It's Fascinating. Just read diplomacy and maybe play it with no, people yeah, you never yeah, want yeah. to talk to. Play again. it once, <laughs> not and friends. Then you're out of therapy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And that stuff—it's absolutely great. And that's going to prevent heartbreakers from like you've done this thing that was done five years ago and you just have to. Ah, uh, we have not described what a fantasy heartbreaker is. Oh yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the uh, the concept of a fantasy heartbreaker is someone has thrown in an incredible amount of passion and hard work. At making a game, and they a beautiful example of this is uh, when someone builds a unbelievably beautiful character sheet in PowerPoint. Why? Because they're using the wrong tools. Because they don't have the right tools. They don't even necessarily know that the right tools exist. So they throw two hundred hours at making something that's beautiful with the wrong tools and it doesn't work quite as well as they're hoping And but if they just knew about this thing over here their life would have been so much easier and it, it just hurts you hurts you in your heart because you you have you're designing a new a variant of D&D that has a much better skill system which is great but you haven't read other games that have skill systems beyond D and D. So you're trying to you're, you're missing forty years of game des, de, design and development and ideas associated with this. So that that's sort of the idea. So reading broadly, playing broadly, bundle of holding and drive yes. RPG sales. Yes, really, yeah, that, that's what really bulked up my uh, libraries because I'm still reading through them. Because um, there's a lot of books. Yeah. But it's definitely an awesome resource. Um, another thing that can give you awesome fantasy resource. heartbreaker syndrome is the uh, you have a great idea, but just the one. Like, there are a lot of great game. There are a lot of super amazing mechanics that are, like, genuinely creative and brilliant fantasy heartbreakers. And are like, this is enough. I'm just going to rebuild. We're, we're going to do D21s instead of D20s. It's brand new! Like... Uh, and that, that's a fantasy heartbreak center was like this is D&D with this nailed onto it and sometimes that's not enough to make a new game uh, because very much it's usually like wow this mechanics school would be great in a supplement for like Dragon Magazine or something but it, it cannot constitute its own game and you're just rebuilding the wheel around it when it's not it, sh it shouldn't really be its own thing like um, the thing I see now as much as I love fate oh god 
there are some like I have a new setting for fate because you know the fate setting is already so canon you can't change that and they're just putting out books it's like yeah it's just fate but it's on a turtle's back or you're in a conference center or like and I'm just like why I could do that with fate already I don't need you to do a book for it like yeah uh yeah so that that's how I define heartbreakers uh the the tool thing's very interesting I see that less now uh, I guess technology-wise, I, I see more often. I see like that is an awesome idea that you have tacked onto that. Why don't you just do your own thing and tack it onto that instead of you know spending all this time doing something that's already been done? Trust me, publishing design is a lot of work. Yeah. Yes. A lot of work. <laughs> Layout is not magic. Um, <laughs> InDesign is not easy and fast. Oh, it's better than Scribus. I don't use Travis. Wisdom. <laughs> um, <laughs> Unrelated note, I have a tutorial on how to use Scribus on my website. <laughs> on the link associated. Uh, it's free. InDesign is extremely expensive. Uh, yeah. The, the thing about license. the thing about Kickstarter nowadays, and what I've learned, is that uh, you, it helps to know your limitations. Strength. So my InDesign skills constitute opening InDesign. Crying, <laughs> closing in design. That that that's how good I am, and I can try and try, and I tried to learn it, and like I, my first book, I spent seven hours one day trying to get the page number on page eighty nine fixed. Seven hours. It was an entire work day. I, I could have written two more chapters in the book in the time it would take me to fix that page number. So the thing is, I'm good at writing. So I write, and if I do a Kickstarter, it's so I can hire someone who's good at layout to do layout. And it's great if you can do it all yourself and Artur it, because that, as a business decision, a publisher decision, that is the best way to go. Uh, the, the person you stiff on labor is you, not your freelancer. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the more you can stiff yourself and not pay yourself, <laughs> the more product you, you make. But at the same time, like, seven hours. I'm, it's not productive time. Like... I would be making more money spending that time writing and saying, here's a contract, you do this for me, and I will give you money, uh, and I will make more <laughs> off of doing that, because I just know that's how I'm limited. And like, it, layout's a bad thing, but uh, a, a more a more decisive thing would be like, do you want to write, do the art for your own book if you're a writer? Like, no one artist. Yeah, no yeah, one wants. Yes, no yes, one wants me drawing. Yeah, no one wants me drawing stick figures in their RPG book. So like, yeah, you, you gotta. You got to delegate. Uh, so yeah. So questions. yeah. Questions along the same line of uh, business uh, decisions. What are the pros and cons of doing something on your own, say Kickstarter, versus freelancing and, and handing your work over to another establishment? <laughs> so the problem with handing your work over to another. I mean, I'm not a writer. Well, I do a little bit of writing, but not enough to actually qualify as one, um, especially compared to YouTube. Um, but like, at least as a publisher, um, I found that self-publishing was a lot easier and learning all the tools. I mean, I'm, I guess I call myself a quick learner. So I'm able to like pick up InDesign, Photoshop and start figuring out how these things work and start using them. And it really does take try and error. Your first book is not gonna be as awesome as your second book because you learned how to use the template in InDesign. You know, oh, I can make the pages appear automatically without copy pasting every time. Whoa! <laughs> what are these object style things? Yeah, oh. no, seriously. Um, yeah, and then the effects and everything like that. But I mean, really, like coming to a publisher and giving them an idea really is hard because I mean, just selling selling an idea to an existing publisher usually they're going to try and do it in house, and most people don't really take outside solicitations unless you know someone inside. And even then, it's like, so I gave you my idea, I don't know if I'm going to write the whole thing, but are you going to pay me for it? Are you, what do I get, a share, a cut? Your, your average freelancing contract in industry standards anywhere between two and four cents a word. Like I said, you are a hack. Accept it, embrace it, you'll be better off for it. Uh, don't take anything less than about two cents. A yeah, don't take anything less than two cents. A Here's the thing: I think business-wise, the best mix is a mix. So, for instance, I work with good publishers that pay four or five cents a word. They're very good. They treat their art as well. But the way I got my foot in the door is I did the thing my, myself first. So my first book is entirely self-published, and it's composed of things that I released as a ransom Kickstarter. Give me the money; it goes on the internet for free, and y'all get it. And I just charge pay what you want. I make. 
an order of magnitude more per month on my pay what you want PDFs than I do on the print product. Um, and it's just, it, it's the tryout. Like, you get it for free. There is no investment. You can see what I do. Maybe if you like it, you can pay me later. And that's not, but because I had that, I got more professional work. So I'm not working for free anymore because I've got art green credits and C-Corp credits and post-human studio credits. And I would have gotten none of those or none of those opportunities without that self-published thing. So I think self-publishing is uh, great awesome if you want to keep your own margins. I think it's great if you've been freelancing a while and you feel like you've got your legs under you because you're going to get better margins on the sales. So I, I, I'd like that sandwich. I think it should go self-publishing, freelancing, self-publishing. Uh, that, that's usually the best way to do it. So two questions, two more questions. Yeah. Um, if, you were gonna, if you were talking to teenagers, what would you tell them is the most important skill set, personal attribute, educational thing they should be paying attention to if they want to be involved in this professionally or like hobby? Uh, for hobby, well, actually, really, it's interesting because we all come from different walks of life. You know, all gamers, I mean, like, I was a member of the SCA. It's a medieval recreation society, and we fight in armor and hit each other with sticks, and then afterwards we have beer. Um, it's awesome. Um, but, like, you know, we've got lawyers, we've got craftsmen, we've got, you know, um, machine workers. There's someone from every walk of life, and yet we can all get together and share skills. Like, I'm... Uh, me and Jason, we're both um, in the environmental science studies path. I work in transportation. I don't know what he does. I, I, I work with polar bears. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> we got to talk more. Um, <laughs> and then he's a creative. Or, yeah, and then you're a creative I'm a teacher. Or teacher. Uh, so I actually teach a tabletop <laughs> game design class. Uh, with teenagers, there's two things you don't have to overcome. So uh, if you're trying to get them in the game design. So the thing is, is like the kids that go in your game design class, they're not captain of the football team. Sometimes social skills are not where they need to be, especially for RPGs. And that is a skill you have to train like anything else. So, for instance, and I'm not trying to disparage, like, nerd types. Like, some of my kids have Asperger's. Like, going in an RPG, it's like going in gladiatorial combat. Yeah. yeah. So you have to really work on those social skills. But once you do, they're, they're usually a big improvement. And the, the second thing you're going to struggle with modern teenagers to get them into game design is it's just literacy. They need to read. You need to get a book made of dead trees and put, your, and yep. put your eyes on it. <laughs> Video games aren't going to do it. You can't just play other people's games. Like well, it, playing games that and helps. reading games will really help. Yeah, that helps, yeah. but like you're going to have to expose yourself. You're going to have to run games. If you're designing, you're playing the GM most of the time. Um, so can we get one more quick question, and then we need to play, because I'm running a game in five minutes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Any... Last questions, we're good. All right, thank you very much. If you come to the front, we have cards yes. that have Stop. links to a tons of, ton of resources. All right. Please grab them. Oh, thank you, everyone. <laughs> Sorry.